Today, we are going to be exploring an issue that is of utmost importance, and that is cancer. This will also be a continuation of our series on Conversations with Remarkable Minds. The year was 1975. I had published a book at that the year before called Body Pollution. In that book, I laid out how I believe, based upon the science that was readily available, that we were swimming in a sea of environmental toxins and that these had been fairly well established that they were counterproductive to health. At the very least, they could be shown not to benefit our health and then more often than not actually cause cancer of various types in animals or in humans. But there was a problem. Standing between that information and the public's well-being was a formidable arsenal of special interest groups, lobbyists, foundations, members of Congress, members of that administration, irrespective of whether it was Democrat or Republican, the individuals who worked in many of the government regulatory agencies, including the FDA, the National Cancer Institute, U.S. public health uh, departments, frequently went from those positions to the very industries that they were, had been safeguarding us from, and then or back into those agencies. And yet they did this with virtually no public accountability. There were legions of people appearing on television programs saying that anyone who speaks out against the environment is a quack, a nut job, pseudoscientific. And the American Medical Association at that time had a secret department of investigations headed by a lawyer named Doyle Taylor, another man named Rockthrock Morton. Together with over 69 employees, they had for more than 30 years been able to thwart any effort to challenge any medical paradigm or any medical procedure. And the targets included naturopathy, homeopathy, and chiropractic. They were so successful that a chiropractor could not use a public hospital to take x-rays or to even... Uh, refer a patient to a physician because to refer a patient to a chiropractic or receive a patient from a chiropractic would make you suspect that you were giving any form of tacit approval to the unscientific cult, the quackery, the total nonsense, the complete fraud of chiropractic. At least that's what doctors believed. I had received documents from inside the AMA headquarters that told of this conspiracy. I put those documents into the hands of various chiropractics and members of the media. And not long after that, there was a major lawsuit, the largest medical lawsuit in American history. It was brought by five chiropractors. More than one million documents became public in discovery. The head attorney was a man named McAndrews, whose own brother was a chiropractor. In there, all of the sordid details came out including how every so-called blue-ribbon panel that had been impounded by the federal government to determine whether chiropractic was legitimate as a healing art and therefore qualified for Medicaid for lower back pain had been stacked. They even had copies of meetings of who was to be coached to make sure that they voted the right way against chiropractic. Schools could not uh, have a chiropractic in their classes in science because if you're going to say someone's unscientific and therefore shouldn't be trusted, they're not practicing scientific medicine, you had, by extension, had to say that they had no science background. So they simply excluded 
chiropractors from being able to get any accredited courses taken. No insurance company would cover them. To do so would mean you could lose accreditation, and no hospital either, you could lose accreditation. All this came out, the AMA and the 11 largest medical organizations in the United States were found guilty. They had violated the Sherman Antitrust Act. They had committed fraud and restraint of trade. They appealed. They lost the appeal at the Supreme Court. They had to pay millions of dollars in fines to a group of chiropractors who put that into an educational program. Henceforth and forevermore, they could not libel chiropractic as a profession. That did not mean that they did not then take their files and give them to so-called quackbusters and others to carry on their campaigns privately. It was in that time, and it was at that, that type of environment that I found myself debating across the country individuals who said our environment was not posing a health hazard, that if anyone got cancer, it had to have been because they had bad genes or because they were simply old. No matter what evidence was presented to the contrary, the American media sided with the official position, as they had against Rachel Carson. So from there, I went on to do a series of articles challenging the politics of cancer. My first article drew a swift response from the President of the American Medical Association. I responded and asked him to debate me on the facts. He refused. I then sought out all the people I could to debate bring the issues forward, let's examine them carefully and objectively and dispassionately. They sent out their quackbusters, and one by one, when I would talk about hair dyes or pesticides like DDT, they would then send out someone who would say, well, I'll eat a tablespoon of DDT to show that it's harmless. The American media said, well, it must be harmless if this professor from UCLA is willing to eat a teaspoon and everything else to the contrary was laid aside. You would think that in a nation that had built so much so quickly, we would have reason and responsive minds. Well, guess again. Welcome to the real world. Let us go over and say hello to Professor Derva Davis. Professor Davis is a renowned environmental health expert and professor of epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health. She's held multiple advisory positions on national and international agencies, including the World Health Organization. She is also author of 170 scientific publications. Her recent book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, explores our government and medical industry's persistence in fighting the wrong war with the wrong weapons against the wrong enemy. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Would you assume that if an entire industry using chemotherapy for 50 years had not gotten better results. At some point, someone might actually question the validity of the kind of reasoning and choose a different direction instead of pouring more money into more experiments? Or do we continue on believing that everyone who's doing anything in the world on cancer must be supported irrespective of the outcome of that effort? Well, as you know, the world changes, but maybe not as fast as you and I would like. I, I was listening to your introduction about chiropractic, and I note now that NIH recognizes that chiropractic can be a very valuable treatment. It's taken 30 years, but they have it now on their website that it can be used for treating low back pain and a number of other things. I think the reason that my book is out now and getting the response that it is from people including people like you who've known all along about this issue, but many others who have not, is that there is a general recognition in the cancer research community itself 
that we've got to pay more attention to prevention, that we've got to change our, our approaches as we are doing to boosting the immune system and understanding the role of natural products in giving us a better chance of, of fighting the disease. And yes, you're right, the track record has not been great, but in fairness, we have, a mil- we have at this point 10 million cancer survivors in the United States. And that's because we have succeeded in finding and treating some forms of the disease. At the same time, if if all we do is improve our ability to treat cancer, we're just going to be better at processing sick people. And as you know from the work that you've done, what we have to do is prevent people from getting sick in the first place. I would agree with that, and that's where we're going to spend our energy here. By the way, have you read Professor Abel's report on cancer? I don't know. I have not. Okay, I'd like to share this with you, and then we'll go into what is the cause of cancer. And what's his first name? Uh, Professor Ehrlich Abel. He, he did a report, and I'll be happy to give you a copy. He spent a number of years as a, um, as a medical biostatistician reviewing over 3,000 studies from Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, on cancer treatment. And the report showed that 80% of cancers, the organic cancers, had not responded to chemotherapy. Only 20% had. And the reason that people continued to give the credit to chemotherapy or to radiation was because they had no other capacity to appreciate a person's resonating immune system or anything else they might have been doing that might have helped them or that some cancers would have had the same outcome no matter what someone would have done. And... uh, and it's worth reading because it shows that, in his conclusion, was that the reason chemotherapy continues to be encouraged or researched or used is the belief in it, not the science that it actually increases or duration of life or quality of life. So it'll possibly give you a little different perspective on the reason why we've had so many people surviving cancer. And I would argue it is not because of the treatment in all these cases. Twenty percent yes, and I commend that. Eighty percent no. And at the other end of that argument. Let us take a look at how many millions of people have died because of the efforts of these individuals, not merely the cancer itself and the cytotoxic reactions to that. That is another debate, another story. I just want to plant that idea in your eye. Uh, in your well, eye. I appreciate your... Uh, I'd be happy to look at it. As I say, I haven't seen that. But what I can tell you, and as, as you know as well, there are certain treatments for cancer, like for Hodgkin's disease, where you uh, can treat the disease effectively with radiation and then... You know that if you've done this and young women are 16 or or under, that by the time they're 40, one in three of them will have developed breast cancer. We also know that there are other forms of cancer treatment that do increase the risk of other diseases developing later on. There's no question about it that cancer treatment um, can cause a lot of problems later on, although it can cure cancer for a period of time. So when when you're talking about that, of course, cure is a relative term. If you think you're going to be dying, you want to live and you'll do whatever it takes. And that's been, I think, the lesson as well. I've had my, both of my parents develop cancer, and I know that all they wanted was anything that would give them a chance to live a little longer. In my father's case, he did very well for um, much, much better than anyone had ever predicted. But it is a very, very serious problem that we, we confront, and the fact of the matter is that much of the cancer enterprise has been focused on finding and treating the disease, and we have failed to address the the needs to prevent cancer, and we've failed to address even the dangers of cigarettes and asbestos as soon as we could have, because the world scientists certainly understood the dangers of tobacco 
in the 1930s and 40s that I document in my new book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, and they understood the dangers of asbestos. The United States has still not banned asbestos. Most people don't know there may be 35 million homes in the country today that have asbestos in their insulation in their attic. And Christy Todd Whitman, who was the EPA administrator, tried to actually mount a national campaign to warn people to look into their attics and to have asbestos safely removed, and the Office of Management and Budget um, rejected her proposed national program. Now, if you go to the EPA website and you know enough to look and type in Zonolite Insulation, Z-O-N-O-L-I-T-E, you'll get information about this, and not all asbestos should be removed needs to be removed, but you do need to have a professional licensed person evaluate it and decide what to do. And it is a completely avoidable problem. I agree. Let us go now to the issue that has been so confounding, and that is to try to understand what we could eliminate from our lifestyles or lessen that would then lessen the impact of cancer. But I'd like you, if you would please, to include the context, both political um, and the special interest groups, that every single effort to push in one direction towards prevention gets up counter-pushed in the opposite direction by denial or some form of obfuscation. Well, it may surprise you to know that the American College of Radiology has recently called for reducing the use of diagnostic radiation because they recognize that it is going to be causing cancer the way we are using diagnostic radiation, particularly CT scans in children, is going to be producing cancer today. And they've called for summit meetings with emergency room doctors and with pediatricians to inform these physicians about the amount of radiation involved in CAT scans because a CT scan, as you know, does not involve one X-ray. It involves dozens to thousands of X-rays. And subjecting babies to these which we are doing now, is putting them at risk later on of developing a host of diseases. Okay. What I'd like to do is if we could take a little time now, almost like a classroom on the air, where you could take us through the list of cancer-related areas, uh, phenols, uh, benzenes, cosmetic toiletries, body care, plastics, environmental industrial waste, asbestos, uh, aspartame, which a lot of people don't know the problems, Ritalin, think of all the kids taking Ritalin each morning, the unnecessary mammograms, uh, electromagnetic exposure to all the kids with cell phones glued to their ear and sitting in front of a computer playing games at night till late hours without any idea that these could be impacting upon them. So if you could tell us what the problems are, that's good. If you can tell us any of the problems with any of the politics associated with it, that even gives us a larger context. The forum is yours. I'm going to keep quiet and listen. Well, I thank you for this opportunity, Gary, because I appreciate the fact that you've been aware of some of these dangers for for decades, while others are just figuring out about about them now. In my book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, I talk about how in 1936 the world's leading scientists understood that the dangers of many forms of uh, industrial products were well known. They knew in 1936 that benzene caused cancer. Benzene today is in much lower levels than gasoline, but we can still find it in uh, in consumer products. And there is and the most exposure you get to benzene is from living with a smoker because benzene is produced whenever anyone smokes uh, tobacco. But there are also other sources in in fuels and solvents and cleaning products that we need to get rid of. There's no question about that. 
Um, in addition, they knew in 1936 that hormones cause cancer. Natural hormones uh, in uh, high amounts, the earlier in life a woman enters, uh, starts to menstruate, and the later in life she goes through menopause, the greater her risk of breast cancer. That's been known really for centuries. Now the question becomes, there are synthetic materials that act like hormones, including some plastics, some solvents, some pesticides, and we have not adequately controlled them uh, in understanding uh, in, in our regulatory policies. They also knew that sunlight caused cancer. In 1936, Angel Honorario Rofo did research showing that sunlight produced skin tumors in rodents, and he also showed that if you combined exposure to hydrocarbons like benzene and sunlight, you got more of a cancer uh, effect than, than if you did not. So it was already shown then that um, you could have this interaction so that exposures uh, would um, enhance the cancer response if you combined the exposures with um, exposures to sunlight and uh, radiation uh, from, um, and chemicals like benzene. So they, they also were aware that diagnostic radiation could cause cancer. And in fact, I tell the story of the discovery of X-ray uh, at the turn of the century. And uh, within uh, months of the first X-ray having been taken, uh, people were having X-ray parties in London and Paris and Tokyo. And the front page had featured the world's first X-ray. And people were so excited about it Within a few years, it was clear that you could die from excessive use of, of X-rays. And now we uh, have a situation where the American College of Radiology is concerned about the unnecessary use of radiation. We've had a tenfold increase in the amount of CT scans, that CAT scans. And a CAT scan is not one X-ray, but dozens to thousands. And people are unaware, and physicians are unaware, of just how much radiation is involved. Uh, in, in those exposures. So those are some of the things we talk about. With respect to aspartame, the story on aspartame is that it was never considered safe by any scientific group that reviewed it in the 1970s. And in 1977, the FDA general counsel sought a grand jury indictment because of the nature of the information that had been submitted on aspartame, charging that it was fraudulent and flawed and deliberately so. Well, that same year, the company, G.D. Searle, hired Donald Rumsfeld to become their CEO. Um, Rumsfeld had just left a position in the Defense Department, as you may be aware. What happened next uh, was, over a period of four years, the grand jury never really finished its work. Many of the people who had started to work for the uh, FDA ended up working for <clears throat> the company themselves or the lawyers working for the company or the public relations agencies. 1981, the day after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, the company filed for uh, approval of aspartame, and that approval was granted um, five months later. Now we have new evidence from a group in Italy that has produced some of the world's most highly regarded research on toxic chemicals. That evidence suggests that prenatal use of aspartame, animals that are dosed starting when they're rodents are pregnant and dose throughout their lifetimes have a really increased risk of cancer that doesn't occur until the animals reach the equivalent of your and my age, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. When these animals get to be older, 
That's when the cancer kicks in. These studies of the Ramazzini Foundation are using an approach where the animals live to their natural lifetime. Normally in animal research, animals are sacrificed after two years of life, which would be equivalent to the late 50s of people. But when animals are allowed to live to the third year of life and they've been exposed prenatally to aspartame, most of them develop tumors. Now, in fairness, human studies on aspartame have found no increased risk. But think about it. The aspartame studies that have been done in humans have generally been done in older people looking at their use of aspartame when they are in their 50s and asking them whether their brain cancer that they may or may not develop five years later could be associated with their aspartame use five years earlier. Now, we know that brain cancer is a very complex disease, like all cancer, and it may take decades to develop. So studies that look at what people used five years earlier are unlikely to be a definitive resolution of this question. And my concern is that we do not have independent information on whether or not uh, aspartame is really safe. We do not have independent information on cell phones. Recent studies suggest from Sweden that people who use cell phones for 10 or more years have doubled the risk of brain cancer on the side of the head where they most frequently use the phone. Now, I can't tell you that this means that cell phones are dangerous, but I can't tell you that they're safe. And what I can say is that the governments of England and Germany and Sweden and many other countries do not recommend that children use cell phones. And in Mangalore, India, it is illegal to sell a cell phone to someone under the age of 16. So what I recommend is that you use a cell phone with a speakerphone or a hollowed core uh, tube for a wired headpiece, um, and that we recognize that this is a technology that has transformed our lives, but that we need to limit our exposures while the electrical engineers continue to design what I hope will turn out to be safer phones. With respect to Ritalin, Ritalin is widely used today. Um, there are not definitive studies on whether it is dangerous or not, but I report in my book on work done at the University of Texas and published in a peer-reviewed journal that took a small number of children and followed them for a short period of time before and after they used Ritalin. And after six months of using Ritalin, all of the children had substantial increase in certain damage to their uh, DNA. Now, given how many millions of children are using Ritalin, I think it's important that we have independent extension and elaboration of this work. And right now, there's nothing like that going on. We have lost the ability to have independent funding, government funding and monitoring for the FDA, for the Consumer Product Safety Commission, for the EPA, for the program of the government that is supposed to be testing chemicals, is at a historic low. And the, the president has just vetoed the budget for NIH, but NIH is still in a pretty good situation. The other agencies, the ones that we think are protecting ourselves, are really hamstrung at this point. But careers in science are being destroyed because of the lack of funding for research at this time. And I'm not sure we will ever really recover what we've lost in scientific capacity right now because of these funding cuts. Because as you might imagine, there hasn't been a great deal of interest in monitoring, measuring, and understanding the ways the environment affects our health. As a Chinese proverb says, a way of looking is a way of not looking, and we've been not looking 
for a long time, and we'd have had a policy with respect of environmental hazards of don't ask, don't look, and you can't tell. I appreciate that oversight. Let's go a little deeper. Talk about how in 1954, the first director of the American Cancer Society, Clarence Cook Little, one of America's leading geneticists, became the director of the Tobacco Industry Research Council. And then talk about 1978, President Jimmy Carter uh, fired his health secretary because Joseph Califano dared target smoking and workplace cancer causes. And what does that tell us about this? And and then go through the compelling evidence of the connection between smoking and cancer that was well known early, as early as ni- 1950s, and it was only because the seven leading CEOs of the tobacco industry lied under oath when they said they, there was no addictive quality to tobacco they knew of, and then documents came out later that showed it did. And at the same time, the FDA absolutely knew, but refused to divulge because of proprietary interest on the patents that it would cause these harmful side effects. So what does it say when one agency of government is supposed to protect us says, we can't tell you the truth, you're going to have to die um, because we don't want to upset the financial interests of the tobacco industry. To me, that is just, it's almost Kafka-like. Well, it may be Kafka-like, but the reality, as Winston Churchill once quipped, is that democracy is the worst form of government that we know of, except for any other form that's been tried. And so what I'm encouraged about now with my new book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer, is that people are talking about it now. Um, It's the number one book on Amazon for science and oncology as of yesterday. And this this is telling us something. The world may be ready to hear what you and I have to say on this issue. Yes, in 1954, the first director of the American Cancer Society, Clarence Cook, Little, left that position to become head of the Tobacco Industry Research Council. He was a pipe smoker. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine with a lit pipe. The American Cancer Society became one of the most ardent anti-tobacco groups in the world, but they did it a lot later than they could have. Their own staff in 1950, their scientific staff, had evidence of the dangers of tobacco. And I've interviewed people who were family members Tyler Hammond was a bold, brave, and brilliant man who, sh- who showed the dangers of tobacco in the 1950s and was threatened with financial ruin if he released the results of his work by people who were running the American Cancer Society. Let's look at who ran the American Cancer Society in the early days. It was the advertising industry. And who was their number one client? was tobacco. So for many people, the addiction to tobacco was physical as Nicotine is one of the most addictive substances in the world. But for the economy, the addiction was really um, economic and and financial dependence on the revenues from tobacco. So the American Cancer Society was held hostage by its board, while the scientists who did the research understood the dangers. I tell the story as well that the dangers of tobacco were not uniquely suddenly discovered in 1950. They were known for decades. Alan Brandt, in his book, The Cigarette Century, documents how long the information was out there, how many people understood the dangers of tobacco. And yet, you're absolutely right. The American Medical Association, the American Cancer Society, they were in lockstep with the tobacco industry for, unfortunately, a long time. And as a result, their political uh, um, influence was quite considerable. Jimmy Carter 
is known for a number of wonderful things, but one of the things he's not widely known for is the way he was so closely tied with tobacco during his presidency. Now, remember this. 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General has issued a report warning that tobacco causes cancer. 1962, the Royal College of Surgeons has a similar report in England. 1971, Richard Nixon launches a war on cancer, and it's all about finding and treating the disease and totally silent about tobacco. 1976, the administration of Jimmy Carter. It seemed, when I went back and looked at it, that a requirement for being a Carter cabinet official was to be a chain smoker. Certainly many people were, including at the first when he was appointed, Joe Califano himself was a chain smoker. So was the head of FDA, Doug Costell, and the head of the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences, believe it or not, was a, a chain smoker. And so was the director of the National Cancer Institute in the 1960s. People smoked a lot. They didn't want, and smoking was, as you know, very addictive. So we have a situation where Califano stops smoking. He understands the importance himself, and he declares tobacco public enemy number one. Well, not only did he do that, he also spoke before Congress and said that he thought that occupational causes of cancer were very important and could in the future account for as much as 20% of all cancer deaths in the future. At the time that Califano issued that report, Monsanto had already retained uh, Richard Dahl, one of the world's leading epidemiologists, a man who many of us hold in, in high regard. But Dahl never told people that he was working for Monsanto and other chemical companies. And Richard Dahl issued a report criticizing what Califano had said, assuring people that there really wasn't an increase in occupational cancers and that the environment was a trivial contributor to cancer. And that report by Sir Richard Dahl and Sir Richard Pito uh, was widely circulated, but very few people realized that what that report did was to look at deaths from cancer in white men only, not uh, including blacks and who have tend to have dirtier jobs and live in dirtier workplaces. And it only looked at deaths that occurred up to 1977. Well, the reason that's important is that other work that I've done and others have published indicate that there was this amazing revolution in production of synthetic organic chemicals that really skyrockets in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. So looking at deaths in 1977 obviously can't tell you anything about what's happened from exposures in the 1960s and 70s because cancer generally takes 10, 20, or 30 years to develop. Califano comes in and says he thinks that the workplace is an important cause of cancer, and he also says tobacco is public enemy number one. Jimmy Carter goes down to North Carolina. He's getting ready for a campaign. It would be his last campaign. We all know that. And he jokes to the crowd because they've just heard that Califano wants to go after tobacco. And he says, I was going to bring the secretary with me, but uh, I found out that not only is North Carolina number one in making tobacco, but you're number one in making bricks. So I didn't think it would be safe. So he makes a joke of the fact that there's such animosity uh, to Califano. And some of the Democratic congressmen said, we're going to have to show Mr. Califano what we mean on this with a two-by-four. So people went, went after Califano in a big way because he went after tobacco and workplace hazards. Well, he wasn't alone. We could add with uh, 
Richard Dole of Oxford University, Hans Olaf Adami of the Karolinska Institute, which is the equivalent of the FDA in Sweden. We could add in Demetria uh, from Harvard School of Public Health. They all secretly worked for the chemical industry for years and didn't disclose these ties when publishing research, providing any government advice on these subjects. And even now, when people are required to list who, re, uh, who they receive money from or any form of honorarium, no one ever goes to the end of the article and says, gee, how biased could this be based upon the official associations? So the American public doesn't know who paid for the research, who, pay, who was paid to be on paid research, who ghostwrites write, go, an article and uses someone's name had nothing to do with it. All of this is occurring, and the public is then believing, well, it's not bad, or someone would tell me. The fact that something hasn't been said to be bad doesn't mean that we didn't know about it. And also, I want you to talk in some depth now about the major chemical companies. Even <clears throat> even working in asbestos, uh, excuse me, uh, working in um, uh, small towns, they mainly of African Americans who live there, they contaminated Louisiana Delta towns like Mossville and a couple other places, and they, they denied all responsibility for that pollution. And then the people end up having astronomical levels of disease. And, uh, and, but then in comes the power of who they control through the lobbyists and what the politicians do to identify them. Talk about that. Well, I, let, let, I'll be glad to do that. But let me just say that the Karolinska Institute is not a part of the government. It's, it's a research institution in, in Sweden. No, but I know. Re- I just said it's like the FDA. Oh. In the, well, in, in fact, our FDA ought to have a research capacity, and it's been gutted. There are still people working at the FDA who have the authority to do research, but at this point we do not have the resources for them to do the work uh, that they ought to be doing. And that's one of the other consequences of the way the budget has been um, used here. Under this wartime footing, funding for research on the environment is certainly a very, very low priority. But you're, you're absolutely right. In some situations, major chemical companies have dealt with environmental threats and allegations of harm by simply buying up and moving entire towns. And one area in particular um, that I write about was Mossville, uh, Louisiana, where um, the citizens got lawyers to organize for them uh, and provide a lawsuit because there was so much heavy contamination in the area. And as a result of that lawsuit, um, the, the town was basically moved. When I went there to visit, the only thing left was a, a plaque um, that sort of was a sign of, of what had once been there. Um, and it, it showed the names of people who had died, written on red faded paint on this white placard. Um, but that was all that, that was left. And I interviewed a woman who told me what it was like Growing up there, in next to Georgia Gulf's flagship flagship chemical plant, and the um, the region that is part of what's called Cancer Alley, where um, people have from time to time gone down and talked to the residents. At one point, Oprah Winfrey had a show there, and the CDC said, "Yes, there are babies born here with higher rates of neuroblastoma." near the marine shale processing plant, um, and the local citizens thought it might be tied to the fact that this recycling plant basically took in toxic waste and then turned out an ash of pellets that was supposedly harmless stuff, um, and all of this was perfectly legal. Well, Oprah 
asked one of the medical experts why so many people from the area, including many babies, were so sick. And she heard, you know, the usual litany. You smoke and drink too much, you have too much dirty sex, whatever that was supposed to mean. And in response to this reply, <clears throat> she held up an infant with its swollen head and said, yes, this little baby must smoke about three packs a day, Doc. Well, a few years after she visited, the town of Mossville in Calcasieu Parish was wiped off the map. As I indicated, the only thing left with this sign, I interviewed a woman from the area named Della Sullivan, and she talked about what people would be told to do then. They were told to, quote, shelter in place. And um, when I asked her what that was like, she said, you know, they would be terrified. A big boom would go off, rattling the house and everything in it, and the windows might crack, and you'd run out in the middle of the night in your uh, bedclothes looking out for swamp monsters. And I said, wait a minute, you don't really believe in swamp monsters. And she said, look, of course there are swamp monsters. What do you think a water moccasin or an alligator really is if you're running for your life in the middle of the night into the swamp? And uh, there were amazing stories of the people there of what it took to survive under those conditions. Terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well, I can read you one thing that she said because it was kind of, uh, kind of hard to believe, but an example of of where imagination kind of takes off. And I thought it was it captured a little bit of of that environment for people there. Sure, please do. Um, <clears throat> when I asked her about swamp monsters, she said, "Of course there are swamp monsters. What do you think a water moccasin or an alligator really is? We grew up knowing things to stay away from." Nobody in their right mind goes into a swamp at night in their bedclothes unless they be scared out of their head. Let me tell you, when we were little, we thought, sure, we saw a bull with fire coming out of its nose. A bull chased us with be red eyes and be fire coming from his nose. Of course, my siblings and myself, we all saw the same thing. It was just like dark, dark figure, tall, tall like the devil, big, big old eyes, and he'd stare down at you. He'd scare you, but he wouldn't do nothing, you know. We would all holler and stuff about it. The really strange thing is we only told this tale to one another after we got grown. And then she went on to tell me about strange things happening with the squirrels. The squirrels went crazy, she said. They kept running after people instead of staying away like normal squirrels. Strange things would be happening. And finally, when the CDC went out and tested the area of Mossville, they found that the area residents had three times more dioxin in their blood than the average American. And the older the person, the higher the levels. And even now, they've confirmed the higher levels, but those are just in the survivors, Gary. We don't have any idea what happened to the people that have already died. And do you know how many people died? I have no idea. And one of the things that happens when you buy up and move a town is you lose the ability to do the study, to collect the information. And all that's left of Mossville today is a small cement block foundations and tall grasses running around what had once been a vibrant hunting and fishing community. And the clause of the agreements that everybody had to sign were that no matter what pollution, no matter what illness, no matter whatever happened later on, they agreed they would never file a lawsuit or make a claim in the future. Or they probably had a gag order of some type on on top of that. Well, uh, let's just say that there is no way to know. And the absence of data in this situation is often used as proof that there is no problem, when in fact it's a reflection of the complex political and economic realities 
that create this situation. And and I, I think that we are seeing now that these problems are while they are have been bad in the United States, are much worse in areas like China, where official government newspapers, and of course you know there are no others in China, have acknowledged that there's heavy rates of cancer all around certain rivers where chemical and industrial enterprises have been dumping pollutants and fertilizers and pesticides. And China today, cancer is the leading cause of death. I'm going to invite you back so we can do more on this. In the interim, I will send you some information that may be relevant to this discussion. And I, I want to close with this thought uh, for you. I just premiered a new film on Thursday, but I've decided to add to it. In fact, we're adding an hour to it because since then I've had a chance to interview a woman. In fact, we filmed her yesterday, and she had this story to tell, that uh, when she vaccinated her child, child was normal, healthy, had passed all of its uh, learning markers, and then immediately the child went into a crisis and then was diagnosed with autism. And everywhere she went, they said it couldn't be the vaccine, could not be the thimerosal. There's no problem with it. And she's very persistent because she's now I have to live with this for the rest of this child's life or my life. And, and then she talked about what it's like to be a mother of an autistic child each day. And it's a horrific story. And then she did something rather remarkable. She managed to find someone who was willing to give her a, a heads up, go to the Freedom of Information Act and file for this particular meeting. Turns out it was a secret meeting with the head of vaccines from the Center for Disease Control, the same equivalent person from the FDA, members of two pharmaceutical companies who, that make thimerosal vaccines, and about four other people. And yesterday she read to me verse, paragraph to paragraph from each one, and it was, it was like someone hitching the head with a baseball bat. And one of the statements was from one of the people is that my son will never get with these stupid vaccines. They're toxic. And then they all agreed that thimerosal, the evidence they had, the evidence they were aware of, showed that it was toxic. But how do we keep this out of the public's knowledge? So the whole session was planning on how to hide information about the dangers of thimerosal, the mercury preservative, and how to spin the story, who they could rely upon. The papers and journals they knew would play the official story, that nobody would run with it if it didn't have absolute proof, and they're the only ones who knew the absolute truth. And this is, the, this is a woman, not a scientist, not a PhD or an MD. This is a mother living with a damaged child who finds the truth, the truth that no academic in America could find. The truth that the New York Post, the New York Times, the, uh, no network could find. The truth that no one in America could find. But she did. So well, she not, was right, right, and the rest of them are a bunch of pathological liars. Now, they lied. I'm going to hold them accountable. I'm meeting with one of the strongest bulldog litigation lawyers in the world tomorrow to go over this, to hold these people accountable. And as she said on film yesterday, why aren't these men in jail for crimes against humanity? Because they were willing to hide information that has caused an epidemic in autism 
and they walked away from it. Now think of how many meetings like that there have been throughout history where men and women knew that something they were a part of was causing cancer, and they chose for ideological, political, economic, whatever their reasons, not to go public with that, and as a result, people suffered, and we just kind of shrug and say, well, that's, you know, that's the system, let it go. And I'm saying, no, there's time for accountability. And uh, the fact that someone from the FDA or CDC or the American Cancer Society tells me something doesn't cause cancer, do you think I stop and say, okay, I guess you're right, I should stop now? To the contrary. Yeah, I'm not an expert on this issue, but my understanding is that current vaccines do not have uh, mercury in them now Wrong. for children. Wrong. Wrong? Wrong. They're still using thymosol? Absolutely. Absolutely, positively, unequivocally, 100% in the flu vaccine. And guess oh, who but they not, want? But not the children. But wait. The flu children vaccine. are the ones. Children and seniors are the two groups that are getting the flu vaccine. All right, so so the but they're not using it any longer in the routine vaccines that are recommended. No, they got it out rather quick. No, but remember, right. for 50 years they were giving up to a total of 63 total infusions with thimerosal in children, and they have the data on how much creates a body load that is intolerable. Her child got the equivalent of what it would be at the at 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 uh, 16 months of what it would be uh, for a 240-pound man to body tolerate. And this is where we go. So I'm just using this as a reference point to show that um, hiding the truth from the public is not unique in any one area of public health. It seems to be across the board and ubiquitous, and we must be attentive, caveat emptor. Yeah, I certainly understand that mercury is very toxic to the brain, but I'm just not an expert on the vaccine issue. And I do think that we've got to figure out ways to get mercury out of our environment and out of our bodies. Oh, absolutely. And and that we're going to talk about. By the way, would you ever suggest anyone get any amount of lead intentionally put into their body? Of course not. Why not? Because there's no safe level of exposure to lead. Lead permanently damages the nervous system. It competes with calcium. Mm -hmm. And when you are exposed to it as a developing child and the brain develops and doubles in the first two years of life, we know that lead will rob you of the ability to develop normal intelligence and normal behavior. Okay. And which is more toxic, lead or mercury? I don't know that I can answer that question. I can. Mercury. By a hundred times. It's the second most toxic element we know. So if you wouldn't allow lead in the body, why did we tolerate mercury? For 50 years. We're out of time, but we'll continue this discussion. You have a lot to share with this audience, and I appreciate your efforts and your work, and hopefully people will pay attention to the secret war, the secret history of the war on cancer. And I hope to look at our website, preventingcancernow.org. All the best to you in this project. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.